going straight in with the big dogs for the post lockdown. Well, yeah, they're after you. We're just going to squeeze your one in and then get there. <laughs> well, it had to be said. I mean, so as I, wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't sure the room was going to be big enough for the two personalities. No, it's yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah, I'm surprised you shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> this is the battle of the titans, the battle of Bath, no. right here. I'm just going to keep my I've head got, down. Got, let, you, let you two old boys talk. I'm just going to keep quiet. I've got a few years' experience on this rookie. <laughs> oh, dear. So without further ado, Bar Fitness Cast, episode one, season two. James Dando, how are you, sir? I'm amazing, thanks very much. And uh, you know, what an invitation. I feel privileged to be here this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, like you said before, it's warm up acts, we've got some big big stuff lined up. We just thought we'd ease in. We'd sort of blow out our cobwebs using you as the guinea pig, but um, yeah, nonetheless we feel like you've got some uh, interesting stories for us. I don't blame you. I'm not sure how I fit into the fitness equation, but I'm sure you'll get that at me at some point. You're a man about town, you're a you're a big local in Bath, you know, you're Big into fitness, um, currently at Tonic, enjoying that, I take it. I am big, I am, I am local, um, <laughs> and I'm enjoying Tonic, it's great, you know, I think you know, I think Bath in general has got a, a wonderful uh, fitness ecosystem, you know, if you like, um, and Tonic's part of that for sure, but you know, there's, there's so much good stuff going on in Bath, right from, from the YMCA and their epic spin classes through to... You know, um, you know, tonic and fly and all the rest of these boutique places. There's loads of great stuff happening. So fitness has been in your life right from the start. I think starting in in rugby and a bit of county county action there. If you want the truth, it started in tap dancing at the age of about four. And there's the first. You know, I, almost, I almost want to call bullshit. Like, there we go. I, I almost think he's lying. <laughs> Straight true story. Up. True story. So four years old, Dorothy Colborne School of Dance. I was. Uh, I didn't have to wear. Any tutus or anything like that? It was all it was all black. Serious. He's <laughs> uh, got this image of Dandons, black leotard. <sighs> yeah, oh, I think it was all fairly tight, tight fitting. Um, yeah, but then that that actually then got me into my uh, my acting career, which we can come on to later if you like. But so for fitness wise, if you like, tap dancing was my first foray into anything that might have got close to breaking a sweat. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, I didn't carry on dancing. Uh, and I started playing rugby. My old man actually played rugby. Uh, he'll he'll tell you he played rugby for Bath. He actually played rugby for Bath Spartans, which is essentially the second team. But we'll let him have it. He played rugby for Bath. Um, so and my grandfather genuinely played rugby for Bath. So we've got a bit of a, a history at, at Bath rugby. In fact, my grandfather was the old players' president. So he kind of carried on uh, off the pitch for quite some time. And I went down there from five or six years old uh, and played. You know, come rain, come shine. Uh, down at the wreck for, for many years. So rugby was kind of my thing from, say, five or six until I was about 19, actually. Um, and as you say, Matt, I played uh, North Dorset. I played Dorset County. I trialled South West England. They tried me at number eight, though. I just I wasn't big enough, if the truth is. Look at me now. You find it hard to believe. I appreciate but you know, I wasn't big <laughs> enough then. Uh, so uh, so it kind of it came to a bit of an end with uh, actually... A, a prolapse disc when I was about 20 um, and I, I played a game on a Sunday and we won uh, and I felt I felt fit and the age group below us were a couple of players short 
So they said, look, can we recruit a couple of your lads, which obviously, you know, against the rules and regulations, but sure enough, a couple of us stepped forward and, um, and that's, that's, I injured myself in that game, really? which has been a bit annoying. Ironic, yeah. yeah. A bit annoying, really. So yeah, rugby's been a big thing. I'm having a vision of, I used to play a bit of rugby when I was probably 13 to 16. Shut it. <laughs> And um, water boy, <laughs> <laughs> Timmy Town Rugby Club, Timmy oh, yeah. Town, yeah, yeah, and um, and uh, yeah, so I used to play a bit there, and I just remember those nights as a, as a kid, sort of training on the decent pitch, right? You get on the first team pitch, I'm just imagining playing on the wreck at sort of 10 years old, that must have been immense, as yeah, a, yeah, bit yeah. of an inspiration getting on the uh, getting on those kind of uh, that type of field, yeah. Well, we did play down at we did train and play down at the wreck, actually. I think now a lot of the kids go and play at, at, at Langbridge. Um, in fact, they'd even turned the spotlights on when it got dark, which was like incredibly exciting. Um, <laughs> Ten pm meter. <laughs> but you know, it was good. we had a really good uh, infrastructure down there. You know, unpaid volunteer coaches. A lot of people know Danny Sacco actually, um, uh, Becky Sacco's dad, and uh, Matt Barahan's uh, father-in-law. And he was very influential in the mini rugby scene. A Lansdowne Master sponsored most of the setup down there, and and Danny, amongst a, a bunch of other dads and volunteer. Uh, coaches, you know, really, really brought kids on. It was, it was wonderful, actually. It was a great facility. I don't know what it's like now. I want to find out in a few years when Oscar's four or five mm -hmm. and need to be down there in hailstorms on a Sunday morning. Yep. So it was, I mean, county is clearly not a bad level. So when you had the injury, was that, was there aspirations to do more in rugby or was it just more of a bit of a good at it, but it's more of a hobby? Or? No, I think I knew my limit, you know, really, if I'm honest. I'm, I'm not quite six foot and, you know, number eights inside centres which was where I ended up playing they were just a lot bigger than me and a lot faster than me you know mm. um, and let's remember I've, I had a history in tap dancing so I was never going to be you know I was never going to be Ollie Barkley was I you know, let's face it, you know. well he's good on his feet you know, you know actually maybe, maybe I just didn't train hard enough yeah. who knows alright so for anyone that knows you and seen you in a nice pair of short shorts that we do around town in the uh, in the gyms Talk to us about the uh, the tattoo on the leg and maybe a bit more about Ironmans and yeah. I know Matt and you have got a connection on that. I know Matt's looking to do more along that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, first so, one at some point next yeah, year, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so after my prolapse, um, I was very fortunate to get some really good surgery in place, um, and basically that meant that I could I could move and do what I needed to do again. I mean, there were times when I would sneeze and I could put myself out for a couple of days or I couldn't do my shoelaces up. You know, it wasn't... Sounds terrible. It wasn't fun, you know, as a as a young 20-year-old lad. You know, I could be dancing in Poonar and I was on a Saturday night and not be walking again until Wednesday yeah. it wasn't anything to do with the alcohol, <laughs> you know. So I needed to get I needed to get some kind of fitness back. The thought of lifting stuff was out mm. of the question. Uh, the thought of running any distance due to my size at that point, and by the way, after I stopped playing rugby, I did increase in size a little bit. I think I got to 109 kilos. Okay. I don't know what that is in stone, but it's close to 17, I think. Almost about. Um, so yeah, I need to drop a little bit of a little bit of Terry. I had a few pair of chinos that no longer fit me. So um, a mate of mine said, "Why don't you try riding a bike?" And I never thought, you know, never even crossed my mind my, my mind to be honest. Yeah. The last thing I rode was um, was a pony at the age of about eight, Shandy. Um, little, little Shetland. You can't make this up. <laughs> can you, like, honestly, <laughs> a little, little Shetland. Yeah, a little Shetland. True story. Um, <laughs> so I'd not really considered riding a bike anyway this my mate a guy called John Allen who um, those that have been in the fitness scene in Bath for a long time will know John he's, um, he's cracking on 50 now and recently moved down to Cornwall but he was a spin instructor at YMCA and a, 
uh, a circuits instructor there for many, many years. Um, and we used to work in Total Fitness, the bike shop in Bath. But anyway, he sold me a bike. And he said, well, let's go riding. So I, I, got, I got a bike and I got some Lycra. And at 109 kilos, I looked. Yes, I look. I looked fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The bike was, the bike was yellow and blue. It was a Villa with Campag record on it as well. All the lot. And I was, yeah, like would like, like right up. Yeah. Um, Cheddar Gorge, never seen anything like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It wasn't. That wasn't the one really. But so so I so I got into a bit of cycling and that went well. And it turned out that once I dropped a bit of Terry, actually I could ride a bike. Yeah. And he, he said to me, look. We can try and do a triathlon. And by this point, I got, you know, my core was strong. I'd lost a bit of weight, uh, and running was kind of, yeah, it was feasible. So, uh, Bradford on Avon triathlon, May the twenty first, two thousand and ten, and there was a sprint distance triathlon. So it was all it was all over before it started, really. Um, but I loved it. Yeah. You know that swim, uh, you know, a mass start, and I had a bit of a competition with a with a chap. Uh, from the YMCA at the time, we were uh, quite competitive in our spin classes, you know, if, that's, if that's the thing. But uh, there's a bit of alpha maleism going on there, and he was also a triathlete. So uh, we had a bet that whoever won out of the two of us on Bradford on Avon sprint triathlon on the 21st of May 2010, whoever won wouldn't have to wear a dress into the YMCA and do a spin class in it on the following Monday. Anyway, not only did I win, I won by seven minutes, which gave me time to clap him across the finish line. <laughs> yeah. So I got the bug. Yeah, I, yeah. Got, I got the bug after that first race. I really got the bug. And May the 21st, 2011, uh, about half past six in the morning, I was stood on a beach in Lanzarote waiting for Straight Iron Man. Straight into Lanzarote. Yeah, literally, literally 365 days later. Okay. And uh, I That's don't know, no joke either. That's I don't mental. know what your policies on this on this podcast are, are, are like, but I stood there thinking, what the fuck am yeah. I doing? Like, I'm really, yeah. Yeah. and I've done the training, don't get me wrong. Did you know how big that race was when you went there? Because I mean, now, at least for the research I've done, Lanzarote, is, it's one of the to-do list when it comes to people who do Ironman. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an iconic race. Um, and uh, Frank is the, the owner and race director of, of Ironman Lanzarote. It's one of the only guys that still owns a license because it's so iconic and they run it in a certain way and it's I mean it's epic uh, it's epic because the climbing is is brutal the heat is brutal when you get the wind in your face it's mm -hmm. hot wind and it's brutal everything about it is brutal and you start the run along the seafront and it's plus 30 degrees in the afternoon and there's holiday makers out drinking San Miguel and you're thinking shit I can't wait for this I know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be that person when yeah, you're the yeah, one in yeah, that yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> you can bring the cold one when you're done Banners and foam finger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in honesty, I've got. I, I think I've blocked it out. I think I've. I. I, I kind of. I've done the training. Um. And I've, I've broken elements. I've broke the swim down. And I've bro broken the bike down, which I knew wasn't going to be a huge problem. And I kind of hadn't really started to think too much about the run, but I, I knew what I was in for. But putting it all together, I just blocked it out, and I just went through. I went through the motions. I finished it. I finished it in. Um, finished it in fourteen hours and thirty-two minutes. And um, yeah, it was it was a long old day. It, yeah, it was a long old day. That emotional. It was emotional. Yeah, there might have been there might have been tears when I crossed the finish line. From you? No, from the people who started yeah. Gellin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was good to say. Eighteen points of Sam Gellin. Never seen that. that coming over yeah. the line. Yeah. So just taking a step back. So you'd had the you said running was feasible. Obviously, found you were pretty handy on the bike. Had you swum as well? No, I hadn't swum at all. And um. I joined um, 
I joined Bath Amphibians. Once I said to my mate John, yeah, all right, we'll, we'll try that. Uh, no, I, I didn't even have a pair of swimming trunks, which was, um, which was probably for the, the best. Embarrassing the first time round. Well, I went up to Bath University. I joined Bath Amphibians. So I went up to Bath University on a Wednesday night, and um, I, got, I got in the pool, and, and, I, and I, I soon found out I couldn't, I actually couldn't swim to the other end. I mean, it's 50 metres. I couldn't, I couldn't get to the other end. I mean, you know, if I went, went, went a whole day to Spain or something, I could, you know, I'm not going to drown in the hotel pool, but I couldn't swim 50 metres to the other end. And so I knew I had a bit of work to do. So I had a few lessons from some of the team bath squad. And, uh, uh, and then once I had a bit more confidence, I went back to the amphibians, you know, uh, and swam with them on a regular basis. And I got better and better and better. And they had a great coach at the time, a guy called Doug Hall. Uh, who's an ex-terror triathlete, um, half Ironman, Ironman triathlete, uh, and a, a lovely, lovely bloke. Uh, and he put a bit of time into me as well, and uh, and that really helped. So then I could swim. You know, yeah. I, I think my best Ironman swim is not going to break any records, mm. but it's like it was just over an hour. I think one three, which is you know mm. not too shabby. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, th- I found personally, again, not being a swimmer at all, <clears throat> and then jumping in the pool. The the distances are coming; they're building actually quite quickly, but. Then linking that to then sitting on a bike for yeah. a good few hours and stuff, and it it almost feels like that that's the element of the discipline you've just got to get done within yourself because if you blow out there, then you're gonna be in all sorts of trouble. But I've started to find after doing it for about I know I've been swimming for about three months now, the heart rate is just staying zone two all the time. Yeah. Even though I want to try and get quicker, it's just not happening. And but the heart rate is it's almost like this low base heart rate, you know, mafetone kind of running. It's that it, everything seems to be. Um, the times are getting quicker, but heart rate just doesn't seem to go above one forty-five. It's like because that. you're you're fit. You're like you're a fit person. You bike, you run, you do all of this stuff anyway. With swimming, it's it's not your cardio that struggles. It's you're becoming more and more efficient at pulling your mass through the water. So you're getting faster and faster and faster, and more efficient, but you're still super fit anyway. So, but it blows my mind when you go down. So this morning you go into um, jump into the quarry, and then you've got yeah. You know, there's some. All shapes and sizes, let's say. For the record, your people shouldn't be jumping into quarries unless they're filled with water. Yeah. So Bob's, Bobster. Bobster. Yeah. Bobster quarry. Yeah. It's, filled, it's filled with water. They just jump. Willy nilly. Don't stick a wetsuit on and jump. flashing up on BBC News. But you get some proper units getting in and technique. I think that's probably where I'm at now, where I feel like I've got a base where I can go and swim. Best swim so far has been about 4K, which, again, I'm pretty pleased with after three months. But then having the technique to actually make that quicker because it doesn't feel like it's a, an aerobic challenge it's more just about how do you kind of start punching through water yeah, yeah, so um yeah. i think i guess with everything you know, one of the reasons why we do the podcast is to promote lessons and pts and stuff like that yeah. for me I, I definitely feel that's the next stage is just to go and get some lessons get the technique down yeah well I've got no, no doubt I mean, obviously chris has got a you know a, a, got my kitty cat badges got kitty cat badges and all that uh-huh. yeah and um there's a there's a, a very very good triathlon swim coach or triathlon coach in Froome, which is not a million miles from where we are now. A guy called Paul Ryman, and uh, he also helped me out a, a fair bit in the early days. But you're right, it's t- a lot of it's technique. I always used to think of the swim at Ironman level as as a warm up. You know, you're in there for about an hour. You can settle your nerves. You can get your first little bit of energy in as well, a few gels before the swim. Um, and see it as a bit of a warm-up. Now, that's all very well until getting in the water at Barcelona or Austria or Sweden where it's super choppy and you get out of the water with seasickness. Mm-hmm. And that's not the best way to get onto the bike. 
Um, but I used to see it as a, as a warm up, right. in honesty. And my, my swim, by the time I got to, um, you know, I was doing my, my 5K swims and, you know, I'd be doing 3Ks in you know, an hour 15, hour 20. I was never going to get much faster. So I used to think, okay, well, I could spend hours and hours and hours in the pool and that might result in me shaving 30 seconds or a, or a minute off over... Welcome to my life. Over three k. So, <laughs> right. but I could go and put that same amount of time in on the bike or doing intervals around the track on my run, and I'd shave minutes off. Yeah, I've so, heard that way. The, spending your energy on whether it be aero on the bike or getting a really good run, you will benefit way more from that in the actual competition than you will from being a quick swimmer. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and in terms of I mean, look, Chris's thoughts are, but what I always found is in terms of your strength and your speed in the pool. It's the same as on the bike and on the run. Is it's, it's doing intervals, you know, and it's it's putting and working on those intervals and you're swimming harder and swimming faster, and pulling yourself through the water with with more effort and building the muscle up where it's needed. And that's what I found then made me more efficient. That in turn helped my technique and that kind of got me to a level. But as I say, I'm mean, gonna put the same time in on the on the track and I was taking minutes off my run time from a guy that was 109 kilos. You know, I've done a I've done a ten k in forty two minutes, and I've done a I've done a half marathon in thirty one, and that's only from spending time on the track. Mm. And I couldn't, you know, I wouldn't be I'd be doing a two hour half marathon nowadays, but that's the Guinness and two kids and <laughs> two, kids. two kids. He says with one sat right in front of him. Yeah. <laughs> you say that about the kids though, but I mean we've known each other give or take a year roughly, I would mm. say, and um, you're obviously an early morning trainer yeah um, yeah and you know having the family so how have you found i know you're not necessarily competing but i know there's potentially rumors of you maybe doing something whether that be a, a relay or something in the future how do you think you're so did you have kids when you did the first wave of iron man no i did t- i got two out of the way before kids or did i get three out of the way don't know it's a long time ago um i got two, two out of the way before kids and then my first one with Ella and she was under one. It was hard work, you know, because you try to share the workload of being a, a parent, uh, the sleep that's nice and all the rest of it. Yeah. But I, I typically get up at half four. It's just what time my body clock wakes me up. Um, and I like to be downstairs messing around about five o'clock. I like to leave the house at half past five. And that was either mean I could be in the uni pool by six or I could be in the gym by six or whatever. Um, but that's, that's when I have to get my training done. Gone are the days of me training twice a day, which is what I used to be able to do when I, was, when I did my first Lanzarote, no problem. I could train before work, I could train after work, I could put my feet up at work. Uh, and so, you know, um, those, those days are gone. And I think for, for that reason, I think until Oscar's a little bit older, I think I've got to rule Ironman out. I've got, I, I tried to do Roth, which is a you know, challenge Roth, is anyone that's into the Ironman scene, that's a big, iconic. that's a big it's iconic. It's that Kona, isn't it? Exactly that, right? And you, you don't get a place for Roth. They're limited and everyone wants to do it. Is it qualify only then? Or? No, it's not qualify only, but I happen to know the CEO, so that qualified me for a place. Uh, I did pay for it. I actually paid for a place. <laughs> Disclaimer. But, yeah, but yeah. yeah, no, I paid for it, but he, he, he enabled me to pay for it, if that makes sense. But I didn't finish it and I was gutted. Uh, I didn't finish it because I, di- I, I didn't put the training in. I didn't put the training in for two reasons. One, because kids had a lot going on. I just did what I could do. I think there's a part of me that said, I've done five of these before, I know what's involved. I can get through. I can get through it. And actually, I couldn't. I couldn't get through it. And I blew up on the bike. I blew up so badly on the bike 10 miles out, I thought I had a mechanical. I was I was checking my bike, I've got a puncher, and my brake sticking on. And it's just my legs, I just didn't have anything left. There's nothing in me. And so I got off the bike, I thought, well, I could go and walk a marathon if I wanted to, but 
that's not fun. So I just binned it. I went, I had two intravenous drips, led down two intravenous drips. They sorted me out in a medical tent and then went and sat in a cold bath for an hour. So you've completed five or you've completed four? Done five. Done five. Yeah, I've still got Roth, I've still... Unfinished business. Unfinished business there. So we will never never say never. Maybe you know I've always kind of thought maybe I'll go back and do that for my fortieth. What a birthday present! That'd be immense. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know about you and presents, but that sounds like a nightmare. That doesn't sound like a present. That sounds horrendous. <laughs> um, but anyway, I mean that's a great insight into, I mean you as a person, and I feel a lot of people probably don't know that. I know I asked you a lot about it when I first met you. I mean, I mean the questions came from just the tattoo, um, which is pretty cool. And just being able to get that because you've completed it or you've done one. That's quite a cool little thing to have, I think. Um, but another thing we wanted to talk to you about was your little homemade farm. Tell us um, more about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, that's that's come about because for a couple of reasons, really. Um, as I've had kids, there's, there's, there's a few things I think it's important for me as a parent to, uh, to educate my children about. And I'll, and I'll go through all of them, but directly to your question, one of them is where their food comes from. Um, and especially with meat production as it is in, this, in the world that we live in nowadays, you know, everything's so factory farmed. And I'm not gonna preach, you know, I just made the decision that I didn't want to become vegetarian, but I didn't want to eat factory farm meat anymore. I didn't yeah. want to eat processed meat. Um, and I've been extremely fortunate that my partner's family have come from a, a farming background. They're not farmers anymore, um, actually. They, uh, they, they build farms uh, nowadays, but they've, they've got some land. And so I said to, to Georgie's dad, look, I'll get some, some pigs and a few chickens. And like, he knows what he's doing. I, I, I didn't re in reality. You know, I knew one end of a pig from another. <laughs> Uh, but that was literally kind of as far as it went. That's all you need to be a farmer, isn't it? Well, you know where to put the food in. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you get that wrong, it's not end well. Yeah, they don't like that. <laughs> um, they don't like it. Um, and so, so we got a few animals, and and that was so one. It meant that I could I could get the kids outdoors. You know, Saturday, Sunday morning, take them down the farm. You know, fresh air, be around animals understand how to respect you know animals um also educate them on where the food comes from and then if in if a few years time ago i don't want to eat that anymore then that's that's fine i'm not problem with that that's their decision, uh, that's their decision. Yeah. but yeah. understand where it comes from because you know there's too many kids eating you know turkey twizzlers or whatever you know and they don't they've never seen a turkey um so is that uh and it also satisfied my own uh conscious i guess is that you know i could i could put food on the table that I'd known have been reared properly, all outdoor reared. And actually the the fruit and veg boys um, down in Kingsmead Square, the, the Weisbergs, um, I used to go there at lunchtime. I used to fill up the back of my Freelander with uh, fruit and veg that they couldn't take over to the next day. It kind of passed its best, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and I used to feed my pigs on that. So they had the best. I mean, they were eating artichokes and cherries and strawberries. Asparagus. I'm it's like, so bad. I, it? I took the I took the little, the little elastic bands off the asparagus, obviously, but they were noshing down on that. I mean, these pigs they they eat better than me. They live the dream. Yeah, you know, some of that stuff I'd take out the back of the Freelander. Genuinely, I go, I'm not, I could take that home. I could, we, I could use that tonight. Yeah. We could still have that with a, with a couple of a couple of eggs, but no, I'd feed something. But that's you know, it's it's good that I'm still yet to try one of your meat trays. But I know we spoke about it. Um, over a couple of bottles of, wine, bottles of wine, but I definitely want to try one of these meat trays. Well, yeah, you, you absolutely can. They come in boxes. 
Uh, we're doing beef. We, we have just finished off some pigs, uh, but most of that has gone to family. We only did four this time, and uh, we get through it. So, uh, but we're doing beef. Um, there's about thirty head of cattle down at the moment doing short wool beef, um, and no chickens at the moment just because time. If I'm honest, like you can you can do it half-hearted and sloppily, but that's not what I'm about or what we're about. Me, Georgie, a brother and a, and a dad, and so. We haven't done chickens this time, so it's just cattle really at the moment. Um, but the, yeah, there's beef, twenty kilo boxes. Um, yeah, we had to buy a second freezer, <laughs> which I sold in the freezer as well. So <laughs> it's all about. It's got end-to-end solutions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. ironic. That, yeah. 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 Oh, we've got this for you. Oh, we haven't got enough space. Well, I can do I that. I can get for you, you a freezer. Well. Yeah, yeah. Right. nice yeah. chest yeah. freezer yeah. in your garage, yeah. sorted. Yeah. Yeah. Back what, to what, the 80s. So I know a guy. I know the CEO. Yeah, yeah. What electricity tariff you want? <laughs> if you switch today yeah. um but yeah no that's amazing um but i was just going to say so so on that front um i think the popularity of it as well as you said is that people do give a shit about nutrition nowadays and sort of where it's coming from is it ethically sourced all that kind of stuff so there, there's there's a market for it right yeah i think so i think there definitely is a market for it but actually on the other side of the coin um it's also slightly out of reach you know, it's, okay. it's expensive. It's a, yeah. It is a more expensive way to produce um, good produce. And it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that there's lots of people in society that can't afford like of that. Course. And therefore, that we have to factory farm. And look, I don't have the solutions. You know, I, yeah. I borrow a little bit of land, you know, not too sure. far away and keep a few animals to, you know, satisfy my own kitchen table. It's and not enough to feed out, humanity. I can't feed humanity. Yeah. Uh, but, you know... Is is something I battle with a little bit, and um, I don't know what the answers are, but we've got a. Is a, is a is I think I think the education piece though for the for the children is is super important. That knowing you know knowing where the food's coming from, having a sense of, you know, kind of there is a you know, meat comes from slaughter. You need to know that kind of stuff, and and then when you go to uh, go to the supermarket and they'll charge fifty pence less for skin on versus skin off. Right, even though you can just rip it off in two seconds, and people don't have a sense of what that's about, and uh, so I think um, just that level of education. I was actually <clears throat> with a neighbour of mine this morning. We did the swim. He's uh, he's a GP, and we were talking about you know obesity and kind of sort of self responsibility on it and, and things like that. And and a lot of it does ultimately come down to education, and that's not kind of passing judgment on people that he has to treat or not. But it's just there is a lack of education of you know, what is healthy, what's not. And we've all seen the Jamie Oliver mm-hmm. kind of programs when people can't name fruits or veg and stuff. And for me, it feels like it should be something that is actually baked into the education system. And I'm speaking from a person who doesn't have children, doesn't have to worry about the schooling system. Mm-hmm. But it just kind of seems to make sense. And it doesn't, in a, in a society that we live in, it doesn't make sense to me how we can't, get that education in so to, to be able to do it as a parent i think is it's just a yeah all credit to you because it, it there's just that sense of education that you probably aren't going to get in the schooling system nowadays no no you you, you won't um maybe certain parts of the education system if it's paid for potentially mm. uh, might cover that off um, in more detail but no and you know what is so important because not only is what you put into your body so important for your physical well-being it's also so important for your mental well-being absolutely um, which brings us back full circle to the whole fitness thing is that you know, it's all very well you know running Ironmans triathlons you're chucking some weights about uh, but if you're not looking after yourself mm. from a nutritional point of view 
you're, you're doing yourself a massive disservice. So that's something I really wanted to talk to you guys about because I try and pull Chris into this conversation all the time and all he'll talk about is just, you know, food on the table, morning, noon and night, you know, boarding school, it was just there, you ate it and you got back in the pool. So, but nutrition, clearly, it's if when you're looking at the level of sports science we've now got to, incremental gains, all the kind of, whether it's elite athlete, whether it's, you know, an age grouper in triathlon, experimenting with nutrition during your training is an important part of the process, I guess. And maybe it's different in a short race compared to a 14-hour race. But what's your take on nutrition from a, you know, from back in your day, Chris, when you were swimming kind of elite level to, you know, Lanzarote? Like how do you experiment with nutrition and what were the things you kind of went through to, to get that right? Because I think for people like me, it's just a shot in the dark. Well, Chris, uh, uh, let me answer first because Chris will actually have the proper answers because he's been professionally <laughs> trained. We can compare them. Do you know I mean? He's been like professionally well trained. So, the spot there. So, so let me give the dirty answer. So I was 107 kilos and I dropped to my lightest at 79, wow. right? Uh, and the only way I did that was through, well, obviously I increased my, uh, my calorie consumption, my, my calorie burn rate and reduced my calorie consumption rate, but I cut out carbs altogether. I mean, I actually cut them out to a point where, uh, you know, friends would say to me, actually, you're not, you're not looking too well. And actually, as an Ironman athlete, you think, well, that's, that's exactly what I want to hear. You know? uh, but I'm not, I'm not now convinced that's the right, that's the right thing to do. Okay. You know, I feel way healthier now at my 94 kilos than I ever was at 79. Um, and so cutting out carbs and skipping meals and that kind of stuff in order to ma- maintain or hit a weight, that isn't the way forward, and I, you know I know that. Um, but I'm sure Chris has got you know, proper training in this stuff. It's it, but it's subjective, isn't it? And it's relative to what you're doing. If you're, I've never done an Ironman, and I will can safely say hand on heart, I never ever ever want to do one. But you're doing that sort of distance or something like that. Like you said, your your calorie intake or your surplus or your whatever, your, even just your maintenance. If you're burning as a male 1,600 calories a day just to live, and then you're training for an Ironman, which I can imagine you're burning. You're training twice a day. Let's say you're averaging six six fifty calories a workout. There's another thirteen hundred calories on top of what you're already burning. Then just what it depends. We've got a manual labor job, whatever that is. Mm. Somewhere along that line, you'll have to maintain what you're burning. So somewhere you'll be putting in three three and a half thousand calories a day, which one isn't easy. Everyone knows how to eat well. Everyone knows fruit. Everyone knows veg. The problem, like you just said there, is you cut out carbs completely. And I know a lot of PTs or nutritionists out there will say, "Oh, just stop eating carbs." You need carbs. You you cannot especially in endurance and even yeah. more so like as a swimmer, it's an endurance sport. Yes, I was a sprinter, but I trained twice a day, every day, two hours. Like doing pasta, pasta, bread, cereal. You know, obviously I ate well. You know, your meats, your proteins, and stuff like that. But you need carbs. Like even to this day, like I might I might skip breakfast, but I'll have a massive pasta bake or something for dinner, and I know how much I burn. And if I'm like I'm trying to bulk up at the moment, so I'm burning on average two seven three thousand calories a day. I make sure that I'm putting three, three 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 four thousand in. It's it's as simple as intake versus outtake, depending on what your goals are and what your sport is. But to hear you say like you just cut out carbs while training for an Ironman, obviously worked. You know you completed them, but I definitely feel there's a better way you could go about it without yeah. having to be that. I mean, I was wearing a size small Ralph Lauren as well. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, that has to be Ralph Lauren. Yeah. I was wearing a, yeah. a extra small baby gap. Yeah, I can't fit in any of that stuff anymore. It's an absolute waste. Uh, but it's it's dangerous, you know. Nutrition is dangerous. There's lots of people that kind of think they might know the right and the wrong ways, and, and I, I'm I'm actually probably one of them. The truth be known. But everyone um, tells me don't like. Uh, everyone's got this. 
no one sort of backs intermittent fasting, but I don't. I get up so early that I'm not hungry, and then I'm flat out till twelve o'clock, so I don't have time to eat. Then it just means I can have a bigger lunch. I can have a little mid afternoon eat, and then I can have a big feed, and then I can have bowl of soup before. And I'm still within my thing, so I don't do it through. Oh, I believe in intermittent fasting. It just works for me. Like I wouldn't go to my clients. You should intermittent fast. Like so, you're probably just because of your lifestyle when you stop eating to when you start. You're probably doing fifteen hours. Yeah. From meal to meal, right? Yeah. From you know, nine ish last snack or whatever to yeah. midday. Okay. And I like to work out fasted as well. And again, not a lot of science behind it, but just going the pretenses that I'm then burning whatever stores I've got, not what I've just fed myself yeah. in the morning. So if you have a bowl of porridge. Your glycogen glucose stores, whether depleted or not, you've just put a bowl of porridge in it and a banana. The first thing your body's going to draw from is what it's got there. Whereas if I haven't eaten for 12 hours, and then it is hard to work out fasted, but you do get used to it. And I swear by it now, but I'm convinced it keeps me in the sort of shape that I'm in. Um, because you're drawing on glycogen and glucose stores that were there. On the same, I always work out fasted, always. Black, yeah. black coffee, yeah. pint of water. Yep. Uh, and then and then work out faster. So what about consumption during a fourteen hour event? I've done a couple of sportives on the bike, and I just can't face putting food in my system. Yeah. So and then you get to the you know get to the break or whatever, and there's all the the sugary flapjacks and all that kind of stuff. Or there'll be a tray of bananas, and yeah. I mean bananas are my go to because it's just easy to get down. Yeah. I just don't want to be chewing. I've got yeah. nothing. So how do you how did you approach that? And again, did that change over the five that you did? Or yeah. Um, so part part of it, part of it is is what's on course as well. So the course will have a sponsor, uh, and the nutrition will be laid out. So. For Ironman, when I was doing it, it was always Power Bar. That's just kind of you know what, what they had on course. And so I would then train with Power Bar. I'd be going out on my bikes on my run using that product. So on race day, it wasn't a shock to my system. Yeah. It wasn't a shock to my gut. Um, and without going into too much detail, I'd also always take a couple of Imodium before the race as well because... Yeah, I don't want that finish line photo, right? Yeah. No, no one wants, no one wants that finish line photo, yeah. and I and I have seen them. Um, so, but there's a lot, you know, you need to put you, you need to put calories in, especially someone that is heavier. Mm. Uh, and I said my lights were 79, I was probably normally racing about 85 kilos, but I was a bit heavier, so you need to be putting them in. I'll probably probably go to about 7,000 calories, six seven thousand calories a race, um, and you'd always have a special needs bag halfway around the bike which you could basically put in there wherever you wanted. And you're taking in a lot of sugary stuff. Mm. So I put in there stuff like Marmite sandwiches and hula hoops. Okay. Uh, I actually what saw... Get the salt. Uh, always ready salt. It's red, red all, all the time. Anything I like. actually saw one guy at my first ever Ironman Lanzarote. This, this, I, I think he might have been a local uh, Spanish guy. He'd actually set out, got his special needs bag on the top of Mirador, he'd laid out a full picnic, this fella. He wasn't any, he wasn't <laughs> any, any yeah, 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 he, was, uh, he had his chorizo out, he was, he was in. Yeah, no, I was, I was, I was spilling hula hoops off the back of my bike, you know, so trying British. to shovel them in and like, it's like the old, it's like the old images of the Tour de France, you have a nice glass of red halfway round, yeah. and there's us with like a yeah, fish, and, fish and chip spread. Absolutely not, no, it was like, uh, just be my confetti of hula hoops. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> off the back of the bike.
So James, I think it'd be the people in Bath that know you, which are many, we know. Three people. Three. Three sat here right now. But your your kind of professional and personal fitness world, sport, they, they kind of clash a lot in terms of what you do. Maybe just give us a sense of how your kind of professional world, marketing, bikes, all of that kind of clashes. Because we've talked in the past about what you do and then you obviously get quite a lot of access to elite level athletes, entrepreneurs that are really kind of setting the scene in these sports. So I've been really, really fortunate, you know, really fortunate um, that I took up cycling and then triathlon um, and in parallel to that I actually worked in TV for quite a few years so back to the tap dancing off the back of that I started acting uh, I did uh, things like the famous five where I was quite famously Billy the Boat Boy um, there's quite a lot of people that know that so, so. Nobody, knows uh, that. nobody knows that no one knows that if you don't know that you do know um, and and so then that took me to TV production and then from that, weirdly, I, I stayed in media, but I moved into kind of more um, mainstream, more specialist, specialist media, I guess. So there's a company in Bath, and many people know called Future Publishing. So I worked for those guys for quite a number, a number of years, and I worked specifically on their triathlon magazine. They had a magazine called Triathlon Plus, and so there I was as a amateur newbie triathlete, uh, and now working with uh, possibly the leading triathlon media in the country. Um, and kind of running that magazine from a commercial perspective uh, and so really early on my, my worlds collided I was then very very fortunate um, uh, and privileged to be invited to go and join a company called Shift Active Media another Bath based business um, set up by the former COO of, of Future Publishing and it was a, a specialist media agency designated or devoted to the world of cycling so we look after big cycling brands global cycling brands um, and help them make smart decisions on their media choices. So where they spend their yen, euros, pounds and dollars when it comes to above-the-line advertising, uh, running their PR. So, for example, we run uh, the press office for the Giro d'Italia, a big bike race that many people will know. Um, we also look after the product PR for a lot of cycling brands. Um, uh, creative research strategy. So we're a full-service agency uh, designated to cycling. We've been doing that for 10 years. Um and off the back of that, uh, which is probably a story for another day uh, in detail, but um, we launched a, a, a media channel called GCN, the Global Cycling Network. Um, and as, as a group of people that had a, a deep history in specialist media, um, and so we, we launched GCN uh, now about six, seven years ago. Um, and it was a, it was a, it was a YouTube channel devoted to cycling devoted to road cycling um, and now that's become you know very fortunately the, the, the world's largest um, cycling media globally uh, we've got I think it's 14 YouTube channels in five different languages um, doing about a million views a month it's actually a, a separate side of our business that I, I don't have that much to do with anymore my time's mostly focused agency side um, but yeah so I get to my, my work and my, my, my leisure have truly collided in that way. And probably doesn't feel like work at all. No, well, it, it feels a real privilege, if I'm honest, Matt. It feels a real privilege to um, be able to help develop um, our industry and our community. Um, uh, and I feel real, real privilege in, uh, in having the insights on you know, what people are looking for, what's happening in terms of trends, um, 
not only from an R&D and product perspective, but also from an audience perspective, you know, how people are shopping a category, how people are riding bikes, the emergence of gravel. Amazing. Right? There's a whole scene, gravel riding. Yeah. It's come straight out of the US. Um, for Chris's benefit, it's basically green laning on a, on a bicycle. Um, you know, <laughs> wider, wider tires, mm. um, but you know these things are happening. So we're right. We are at the at the cutting edge of that stuff. It's super exciting. It really is. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge bike fan, as you know, and uh, we've talked. We so we ride out a bit on a crisp Sunday morning quite often, and um, I normally lend you a wheel. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's Riding a fair hangovers out. Fair, fair, fair point. I usually get dragged along for about two hours <laughs> sitting in his windshield, but it, it kind of works for me. But um, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting, kind of on those rides, hearing about the the ebb and flow of the industry. And you know, Chris and I made a commitment in season two. We weren't going to talk about the c word too often, but the reality is, with the lo- with with the recent pandemic. There's been a bit of a shot in the arm to the industry, and I think when the Olympics was huge, obviously uh, 2012, loads of people in the UK kind of adopted the cycling scene. You had all those first-time purchases, lots of people buying really expensive bikes. But it feels like this time it's it's reached another yeah. another group of 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 interest. Yeah, well, I think that ties up a trio of conversations we were having earlier, right? So nutrition, so 2012. 2012, Jamie Oliver did his thing, right, with Turkey Twizzlers, the Twizzlers and the school meals and stuff, and, and pricked people's ears up around nutrition, right? At the same time, uh, RGB track cycling team absolutely killed smashed it. it. I mean, killed, killed it. it. Um, Danny King and, and, and crew really tore that Brailsford was a brand in himself. Uh, Brailsford was a brand. Um, Brad Wiggins won the tour and then cycled to work scheme, right? That's not to be underestimated in all of this they came to market with a proposition that could enable people to have basically tax credited bikes, you know, spend a thousand quid and actually have it cost you 500 or 600, whatever, really cheap access to bicycles. And so with that nutrition, better living, an Olympic team that was getting mass media coverage and now access to really cheap bicycles of, of a high quality, it blew up. Yeah. And, it, and, and you saw that really peak 2012, 2013, it did drop off, naturally it will do, a little bit 2014 2015 and a few years on now i think the industry the cycling industry has done really well over you know it's done really well over the last i think we're all becoming more conscious about the way we exercise and what we do and uh, and, and transportation as well the emergence of e-bikes you know not using a car so much all of that stuff oh, yeah. is helping but the fact that covid happened and lockdown it really was a, a shot in the arm as you say to the mm. cycling industry and not so much at the, the super top end uh, you yeah, know, you used to seven, eight, nine, ten thousand pound bikes. They did well. Don't get me wrong, uh, but that sub thousand pound bike. I mean, you couldn't get one. You just couldn't get one of those bikes. Um, it's fascinating to see what will happen in the next 12, 24 months. You know, is there going to be loads of bikes in sheds, or are we really going to wait and change the way people move around um, cities and what they do with their leisure time as well? Yeah. So one of the things that uh, you and I have spoken about a few times is around the whole kind of supply chain piece as well and you know, where the bikes are produced. And we're obviously not a million miles from Bristol. You have the Bespoke, I think it is, where all the, the UK frame builders and it's such a history of that in the UK as well. I mean, what do you think around the marketing of that, knowing what you do? I know you work with a very prominent German brand that's really breaking through. Um, feels to me like a bit of a missed opportunity in the UK, really, because we've got craftsmen. All right, it might not be high volume, high output, but people who know their bikes and know frame builders, this is a great place to be. Yeah. But it's not overly above the line. Is that just a 
you know, uh, a limitation on the output that we've got in this country or versus, you know, mass production? No, not at all. I mean, if you take, you know, look at somebody like Brompton, you know, they are a household name. Even Chris will have heard mm -hmm. of Brompton Bicycle Street. Yeah. You know, they are, they are made, um, you know, just outside of London, in the UK, um, by craftsmen. You know, people that go through an apprenticeship scheme with that company um, to make a wonderful product that's incredibly versatile, truly, uh, you know, an urban foldable bike. Um, so we've, we've got all these skills in this country. The reality is that a lot of the carbon fiber manufactured products happens in Asia because that's where the skills are, that's where the people are. Um, and you know, honestly, it's just cheaper to get them, yep. get them made there. But yeah, we're very fortunate. We've got the, the Bicycle Academy actually in Froome where they will teach you how to, you know, MIG weld um, frames uh, and put your own bicycle together. Really? There's loads of that going on around here. It's, it's, a, it's a vibrant, it's actually a very vibrant country for bicycle uh, manufacturing. Chris is now waking up. <laughs> Sorry, that's... No, what I was going to say at the end of that was that when you were talking about bicycles, you're right, I'm one of those people, you say bicycle, it, I just see your bog standard bicycle until you think of, you know, the road bike, it's gravel bike, you keep chirping on about, or road bike, or Bromptons, whatever it is. Because I'm not into it, you say bicycle, I see your generic bicycle. I don't... But, but I, think, I think there's so many things, again, going back to the conversation I was having with my neighbour earlier about... And what you were talking about with the with the deficit calorie burn, and if people aren't going to get the diet dialed in, but then you just jump on a bike and you do a quick fifteen minute jaunt from this side of town to the other, or you commute to work, even if it's a couple of miles every day to and from, yeah. you're then just burning a lot of calories that you wouldn't normally yeah, burn. Yeah, yeah. Um, versus then, yeah, we'll go out on a morning and do a couple of hours. It's not a huge ride, but it's it's decent enough. And there is something that is just good for the brain. And you know this from your swimming when you talk about kind of getting in that meditative state um, when there's just you in the water and you've got nothing else to think yeah. about. And so I do think there's there's so many benefits, whether it be just health, fitness, just habits. Yeah, no, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I remember speaking to both of you during lockdown and I don't own a bike. And I was like, it's just I, I can see where that everyone suddenly wanted that mid-range bike because... That was all you were sort of allowed to do, and working out with a kettlebell in your garden, the novelty wears off because you're working out at home. And so I wanted to then get out on the bike. I don't like spin bikes. I hate the idea of working hard and not moving, being stationary. So like I, I would rather get on a bike, especially when you live in surroundings like Great this point. as well. Yeah. So the, the, the places you can find around here are just spectacular as well, and it yeah. always blows my mind as well. You jump in the car, you drive somewhere, drive home, and you you have nothing, you know, no clue what's going on about yeah. two hundred meters either side. Yeah of the yeah. road you're driving yeah. on and you get on the bike and you disappear down the lanes and stuff and I think in an age of yeah, it's data, data, data everyone jumps on any app that you want to name and it's like how quick did I go what was my average speed what elevation did I do yeah. and I went down that hole and I got to a point where I just made all of my, my rides private not because uh, I was worried about what people would see in terms of my speeds but it was actually a case of I'm just over the data I just want to get on the bike and just ride yeah. and discover what's on my doorstep. Yeah. And since doing that, as long as you've got, you know, some way of finding your way home, <laughs> then it's just absolute yeah, yeah. gold. And you find just the most spectacular spots. Yeah. I, um, I think there's a lot of people that get into cycling, particularly road cycling, and worry too much about the data, worry about their, their Strava statistics, their QOMs or KOMs. Mm. Uh, are they faster than their mate over that segment or even a person that's not their mate even more so over the other segment and it all becomes a little bit of a data rich environment 
and just cast your mind back to the first time that both of you got on a bike mm. and you're probably being pushed by a parent you know without stabilizers and you would have had a massive grin on your face mm. and do you know what that is what a bike yeah, is totally all agree. about and it doesn't matter if you're 7 17 or 70 yeah. it still gives that smile to somebody's face and if it's not physically putting it on your face mm. it's definitely doing it to you mentally mm. there's something about riding a bike that is like nothing else yeah love that love that even if you've got a lot of hills around bath mm. it's nice to have the wind go through your hair as well isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> on that note lads uh, it's been a great chat it's been a wonderful episode James thank you for joining me and Matt and uh, guys as usual this will be up on Instagram like it share it you know um, get in touch if there's any questions you have for either me Matt or James um, then please reach out and anyone else you'd like to sort of see on the show please point them in our direction and uh, until next time yeah thanks for coming in James absolute pleasure the next cow will be available at the end of January <laughs> Beef boxes of 20 kilos, uh, just over 200 pounds. <laughs>